2: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre Dancer. Art and the law have had a long history together. Not only has art been a domain to which the law can be applied with a variety of intriguing outcomes, but various forms of art have long been intertwined with forms of the law itself. Classical literature and theatre, for example, have found ways to form, interpret or mediate the legal system that developed concurrently with them. Similarly. Art has been an agent of course, for justice, not least in the turmoil of recent years. Aristotle already noted the ways in which art can support the desires for catharsis at the very least. Today art activism, for example, is an established genre with its own literatures and institutions. But we shouldn't assume that the relationships between the law, justice and art are synonymous and benign. Indeed, Art's call for justice throughout history has been a source of discontentment. In the words of my guest today, art can be annoying. Art is very well suited to deal with this annoyance or to provoke it. My guest is Franz Wilhelm Kolsten and his new book is Art as an Interface of Law and Justice, Affirmation, Disturbance, Disruption. The book looks at a range of examples of art as a force that mediates between the structures of the law and the desires for justice. Frans Willem Koston holds the Chair of Literature and Society at the Erasmus School of Philosophy and works at the Leiden University Centre for the Arts and Society in the Netherlands. I'm very happy that he joins me now to discuss his book and his research. Frans Willem,
1: welcome to the show. Thank you, Pierre. And Thank you for inviting me.
2: Well, it's a pleasure. Um, I've had both a lot of fun and quite a lot of headaches with your book, which, which is maybe a test to my limitations, but also to some of the complexities of the material and some of the detail with which you contend. But before we get into any of this, I want to ask you a couple of Easy introductory questions. So, first of all, if you could tell us maybe a little bit about your research trajectory and how you came to engage with the legal process, with ideas of justice and the law, and how art comes into it.
1: So, I, I started out actually as a, as a literary scholar, but my, my PhD research was about, let's say, the interaction between arguments and narratives. So, in a sense, uh, let's say, the study of literature um, since the 70s, 80s has been traveling through different disciplines, with, with certain concepts traveling, like narrative. And then I looked at popular or popularizing texts in terms of sociology or sciences. And that, that started out actually as a, as a study of narratives. And then I thought, wait a minute, something else is going on. This, there's this, this constant interaction between narratives and arguments going on. So that was the start. Uh, so I started out as, let's say, someone interested in the impact that texts have and the rhetorical strategies that they uh, employ to reach that effect, which is, uh, let's say, always intrinsically related then to political issues, right? So so let's say rhetoric is intrinsically political. Then uh, I got a job in Leiden and, and actually at the beginning I was more kind of like like all of us uh, who enter who the academy kind of busy with teaching, but then I thought at some point some course that I was teaching was was not really kind of connecting to the students. So somehow something was wrong. And and the thing that was wrong that uh, this course was developed in the 70s, 80s, which were highly theoretical. Uh, and I had classes, big classes of 250 students who didn't seem to know much literature. So in a sense, that theory was, was abstract. It didn't land. And that's when I made... I, I, I started out on on a project that that can be defined as a matter of hubris, Um, uh, it it wanted to introduce students both to historical periods and to forms of literature and to theoretical approaches and to analysis. But the way in which I did that was that uh, each chapter was, was focusing on one concept, for instance, interest in relation to enlightenment. So there was a simplicity to it or a thing that kept it together. But writing this book also helped me to see, let's say, long lines in, in European history especially. Uh, and I'm not saying that Europe is, let's say, the center of universalist enlightenment, not at all. I mean, uh, Europe has been a migrating force field for, for thousands of years. Actually, the 19th century nation-states is, is an anomaly. And then one of the most uh, intriguing things was the Baroque and the idea of sovereignty. And actually, I took... <laughs> by and large the most famous uh, uh, Dutch uh, playwright and poet of that time, Vondel, not very well known internationally, but in the Netherlands always compared with Shakespeare, and I think there's good reason to do that. And I, I noticed something that was going on in his text that was c- constantly struggling with the concept of sovereignty as uh, supreme power, both politically and in its connection to, let's say, some sort of divine underpinning of that supreme power which will later translate itself to the state. And the most important philosopher in that context was Spinoza, whom didn't perhaps know this playwright, Vondel, but they were in the same circles. And Amsterdam at the time was a pretty uh, revolutionary place in terms of ideas. And then I followed Spinoza again to... Modern thinkers like Antonio Negri or Gilles Deleuze. Uh, So I I started to see that line between what the Baroque did in terms of being a pivot to modernity and Spinoza being a pivot to uh, many material philosophies that followed from that. So that was a major theme and that ended up in in a couple of books. And the the last one was a Dutch Republican Baroque, where I asked the question how can we think about the Baroque in a Republican way? Because there are The Baroque has always been conceived of as, let's say, related to um, either papal power, the the Roman Catholic Church, uh, royal power, let's say uh, Louis XIV, or princely power, Germany. And I noticed something in that very strange political constellation called the Dutch Republic, that there was something as, as a Dutch Republican Baroque, which to me seemed to hold a revolutionary potential, uh, b- being very much aware of the fact that, that the Dutch Republic turned into a global empire. And that's precisely one of the themes of that book. So, so one of the painful points is that they start out liberating themselves, reflecting on the issue of slavery, <laughs> political slavery, and then not because anyone kind of envisioned that or wanted that, but they turn into a global power. And they start to engage in slave trade, right? So it's this kind of schizophrenia or paradox, which I think is more systemic in in the development of modernity. But anyway, that that was the last book about that one. My thinking on sovereignty and the political and legal implications of this then brought me at some point to, to thinking about, so how does I relate to that complex field of both law and justice? which which are two things that are often equated or or confused, and that, that I like to kind of keep keep a sharp distinction between. so that's where actually the work on this book started, um, which I developed by and large again in in teaching i I like to work on books more in teaching than in in giving lectures, also because in 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 terms of teaching at least the way in which I do it is it's more a collaborative thing and and teaching allowed me actually to think through things with all these smart students. And that ended up in this book uh, where I consider art to be an interface between what I call the system of law and the realm of justice.
2: It's oh, fascinating. I mean there's definitely a sense in the book in which we're being taken along your thought process and that's even the even the chapter structure reveals that. But let's get let's get right into it. We right from the cover, we have the distinction between law and justice. And I guess to an extent, this maybe mirrors the kind of question that every law student is asked at the <laughs> in the first first week like you know there is law underpinned by an ethical and moral code is there some kind of straightforward relationship you waste no time in, in saying absolutely not so maybe we could start by by <laughs> by, by making this division clear for our listeners <laughs> before we start arguing why why these things might have to be problematized even further yeah
1: um, i like sharp definitions so let's say i can agree with people uh, who say yeah but everything is political yeah of course it is. But, it, but if you say that, that, then what does the political mean, right? So, so I like kind of squeezing things into, let's say, a sharp definition to, to be able to work with it. As you phrase the question, the, the question is always immediately implying that there is such a relation between law and justice. And then again, let's say, for our listeners, I consider law to be, let's say, a legal issue in terms of laws, indeed, in a system and a judiciary and so forth. And justice, I consider it to be all these different ideas of what people think to be just. Now, I mean, I w- I w- it would be stupid, also historically speaking, to deny that there is a connection between the two, but what's the connection? That's the pivot. And either you say there's no connection, because there have been systems of law that have been very unjust, and they were functioning, and they f- were functioning very well. Then, of course, the nasty part always is that apparently in this system, people, some people, consider this to be just. So let's say the icon or the paradigm is Nazi Germany, fully functional legal system, uh, and unjust. Yes, but at that time, a lot of Germans didn't think it was unjust. So there as well, even let's say that system of law was somehow supported by people that felt that this was a just system. Still, there is reason to say there is no intrinsic connection between the two, because what people feel to be just can, can differ immensely. Um, let's say what we've been uh, witnessing in the United States in the last five decades or so this this in my eyes abysmal or perverted perverted growing of inequality. Uh, apparently, there's loads of people who think that is just. So, so in the in the in the realm of justice, there's immense diversity in what people feel to be just. There's also some basic, uh, let's say, common aspects, by the way, but there's also enormous diversity. So that alone in itself would be reason enough to say there can't be a direct connection between the realm of justice and the system of law because the realm of justice is so dispersed, is so diverse, is so disparate in a sense. So this is why I started to think through, wait a minute, perhaps, let's say the two possibilities, either saying the two are radically separate or should be considered conceptually separately, or say one is framing the other, because it's always the case that, that people then say that the ethical is framing the legal system, right? So that the legal system should have to listen to these ethical imperatives. Now, what I'm saying is these are two different things, and they need an interface. And perhaps they need more interfaces than one, but one is art. That's the thesis of this, of this study.
2: Well let's let, let's try to maybe start with a with an example. One of the things that comes up early in the book is the case of the MH17 flight that was shot down over Ukraine. The fight and the ongoing demands by the families of the victims for justice and this is oh, I'm always using the, the word justice now in inverted quotations <laughs> for for yeah. now because yeah. this needs to be quite filled out. Yeah is something that's subject to quite complex legal processes it's subject to some kind of sociological reactions both within the european community within within russia bizarrely which you touch upon but there's also a realm in which art um, memorialization artistic tributes and so on and so on um play play a part and maybe you could you could use this to speak about some of the terms that you you have on your cover and also within the first pages of the book which I'm I was incredibly amused by but but, but also you know impressed by it. you 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 characterized calls for justice as fundamentally annoying <laughs> um, so maybe you could you could speak a little bit about how how you see in in a very broad outline the possibilities of art placing itself in between demands for justice what demands for justice are and what law may or may not do in response to
1: to such demands? Right. Yeah, Pierre, yeah, I think I think historically speaking, I'm I'm just uh, being re- I'm a, being a reporter in a sense. So so most calls for justice are annoying. They are, and they've proven to be, they, and they have pro- they have proven to be annoying. So just go to the 19th century if if people start to demand that they they want more social equality, that's annoying. If you have a lot of money. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, and even the people fighting for this were annoyed when they went on strike and, and there were people trying to disturb that strike or, or wanted to keep on working and so forth. So, so struggles for justice are extremely annoying to all parties. This is also why they are tiring. Um, and I think uh, it's wise to, to acknowledge this, that it's annoying. And that it might even lead, and this was a kind of uh, a hint given to me by Peter Goodrich, a legal scholar in, in this field of literature and law, who, who witnessed, let's say, working with, with legal scholars, that they were bored. So there is also this link with, with annoyance and ennui, French ennui. So, so I'm bored by these people constantly asking that they want their rights and so forth, right? So this is all true, effectively speaking. Now, in, in let's say, this case of this, of this flight uh, that was shut down, if you ask me, let's say, off the record, I'm pretty sure who's done this. And I'm pretty annoyed by it and and hurt. I think one of the, the fascinating aspects, if you can call it fascinating, to this case was that loads of Dutch people were somehow connected to someone who had died there. And then you feel what the impact of this one crime is, not just to families, but to an entire nation. So that's where it starts, right? Something happens that hurts people and that hurts perhaps more than people, that also hurts a system that somehow guarantees that things will be just. Now, of course, let's say if I immediately become a cynic or a sceptic, I will say, yeah, but most of the time legal systems have defended inequalities and injustice and violence and so forth. This is all true. And perhaps a little later in this conversation, we'd have to talk about how my views on the legal system changed from the 70s up until now, if I can give away that clue. So now I think that the legal system might be precisely a last stronghold against extremely dangerous, uh, both political and criminal organizations that want to avoid the rule of law. And let's say there have been times in which I would have seen the positive sides of that, but I, I start to see less and less of them. So in this case, let's say people hurt, a crime, a nation hurt. And then the question is, what can the law do? And it can only do so much. So, so there has already, uh, let's say, a struggle been going on. So who is going to supervise this? Where is this going to be held and so forth? And then we get into probably a years-long process where we're going to try to find out whether we can find the people who did this. So that's the law part. Meanwhile, people still have their feelings. and They're still hurt. And even, and even if at some point and we will have to see whether that happens. People will be convicted. The question is very much whether people will feel that they've been done justice. They will feel so in part. But there will always be something, I think, where they will think or feel it's not enough. And it's precisely there, I think, where art plays its role in the sense that either it, it propels the question, the call for justice, or it comes in when when a case is closed and and it isn't in terms of the of the things that people feel. So then art starts to deal with that. Might even mean that art comes in to say, wait a minute, the case is closed, but it was closed closed wrongly. So so we have to kind of keep on kind of irritating the system. And most nasty part, there's also art that let's say might defend the Russian position, so to speak. It depends a bit on what you define as art, but there's loads of anecdotes, scenarios, might even be games at some point. I think uh, so far, yeah, the, the, the interesting thing with this case is that art is waiting, in a sense. It's waiting because it's too fresh. So we have this one big, let's say, work of art, let's say, a monument, a memorial that 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 is clearly there. but But... As, as you may feel, there's such an enormous amount of art to be made out of this, and it's not being done. And I, the reason, I think, is uh, people are waiting. It's still too fresh and too precarious, uh, and things are still kind of in the process of the legal system. But my, my expectation is that this case will propel many works of art.
2: Yeah, that's, I. I did get the sense that that you you saw that art owes its living to a certain extent to the impossibility of obtaining justice as a kind of fait accompli. That this is something that is not guaranteed by legal systems at, at all. I want us. I want us to go into the broad theoretical frameworks that you that that you outline. So you proposed a whole set of different ways of thinking about the the logics of law and how they connect to the logics of justice, yeah. and how art might insert itself into all of them, and I guess these are classifications that are quite familiar from literary analysis, but how to, how they connect to to legal studies and how they connect to art, I think requires a little bit of unpacking. So you introduced this idea of of thirds where. Where you have these kind of triads, and I'm going to just just propose a couple of them. So you propose a pairing of fear and desire, for instance, where the law is governed by fear, justice is represented by desire, whereas art in that particular triad is a mechanism that deals with apathy. Um, another one out of I guess seven in the book is one that brings together reason, dreaming, and a hallucination. This struck me as an incredibly interesting. Way of dealing with all the things that art does, and also dealing with the different logics, the different ways in which law and justice represent themselves. So, I think it was great because I think what you've done is great here because it takes art as the guiding force, even though this is not how you present it originally in in, in the theoretical treatment.
1: I think you're spot on. I I, I have no uh, let's say patience with people who give art let's say the role of embodying the higher grounds, the higher moral grounds, or the higher aesthetic grounds would happen. (laughs) Well, you're not making friends in the art academy then, I'm afraid. (laughs) (laughs) So in my reading of things, art is all over the place. Mm. Um, And if I make a sort of systematic analysis where I think, wait a minute, perhaps the system of law has its own forms of logic, and likewise the realm of justice has its own forms of logic. Mm. These two can be related productively. One could be, let's say, that that the two affirm one another. So if we have, let's say, uh, the logic of reason and the logic of dreams, then for instance, if my dreams about justice are somehow answered by the reasonability of law, then the two affirm one another. They might also be able to disturb one another. If my dreams of justice, for instance, would imply that I want to be as rich as possible and I don't want to be bothered by the fact that more than half of the population is suffering from this, then the law might affirm that in saying, yes, your private property is protected. Or the law might disturb that when it says, wait a minute, this is is excessive, and and this is no longer answering to principles of social justice, so uh, you'll have to give up some of your income. Right, so that's the disturbance part and the affirmative part. This is all productive, so there there is no way in which let's say disturbance could be avoided. The disturbance is productive, but it's something else than what I define as disruption, and the disruption works in two in both ways, so it 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 can disrupt both the logic of reason and the logic of the dream and this happens, for instance, and this is my argument in the final chapter when you live in times of hallucination. Um, Very practically, um, one of the, the manifestations of hallucination is the enormous amount of scenarios that's being produced by bots. And bots that are, again, in the service of certain powers. So, for instance, if, let's say, one of the major opponents of President Putin is murdered right in front of the Kremlin, which is an impressive thing to do, And about an hour or two later, there's already a diversity of of different scenarios, of different possibilities, of different anecdotes circulating the internet. Then it becomes a very difficult thing to still know what the dream of justice would be or the logic of reason of the system of of law, because you, you get confused. And at some point, it doesn't matter anymore. And again, I would say art plays a role possibly in, in all these three realms. So it can defend the logic of reason. I mean, most essays do this. If, if you want to follow an essay, there's an argument being developed and someone wants to convince you, right? Logic of dreams, I mean, innumerable uh, forms of art literature uh, trying to come up with, okay, what would, we, what would we desire? What would be just? And art can also be at the pivot of hallucinations. In a sense, the book tries to time and again see where are we and what kind of works am I looking at. So, so I can clearly confess that I didn't look too much at disruptive forms of art in this book, um, because actually I think there's already enough of them, um, and and it might be another book. Uh, uh, <laughs> okay. And in a sense, let's say, uh, my, my political or ethical agenda is pretty clear, I think, if once you've read it. I mean, you, you, you may have gotten some headaches because of the complexities, but my stance or my, 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 the, 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 the political stance that I take or the ethical stance that I take is, is pretty clear, I think. Or whose side am I on? Actually, one of the questions that this book poses is, time and again, ask yourself, whose side are you on? Because that, that determines the entire analysis of what you're looking at.
2: Just as an aside, maybe you could 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 ask you to give give an example or a definition of disruptive art. Because that's 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 something that I didn't really notice as being excluded, excluded here. Maybe maybe we have
1: oh, so, so very sorry, different saying,
2: readings yeah, yeah. Of, yeah. of the functions of some of the practices. Yeah. But but let's do that and then maybe get into a first first serious case study to, yeah. to try to figure out what non-disruptive art does. Yeah.
1: So um the, the, the final chapter ends with a film by uh, Nicholas, Le- Nicholas Revan called Only God Forgives. And that film mm-hmm. has disturbed audiences or confused audiences. It also confused me when I saw it for the first time. And it also
2: grabbed me. And so this is a 2013 work set in Bangkok in which a police officer named Chang pretty much takes the idea of justice in his own hands. This is set against the background of Thailand's quite brutal war on drugs, quite reminiscent, I guess, of what has been going on more recently in the Philippines. And we have this moral agent who both produces evidence and acts on it. And as the title suggests, well, waits for God to forgive, I guess. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Whereas, apparently, uh, he also takes that position of a God. So, uh- Looking at that movie, I was puzzled by what, what is it doing, if I'm allowed to make a small detour here. So, so I've also, sure. also, also studied, let's say, the, the work of Marquise de Sade. And one of the, the introductions that made me laugh was a French uh, edition in which uh, um, uh, a very decent uh, scholar, no doubt, a philosopher said that this is no pornography because it's philosophy. And... Um, <laughs> See, oh,
2: this is brilliant! See, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's important. You need to know which p- p- section of the
1: library to put the book on. <laughs> see, but you have to laugh as well because yeah. this philosopher seemed to be missing the point. It is. It is both, um, <laughs> and this is also why it's disruptive. So, in a sense, uh, the sad is also disrupting the very basis of of ethical behavior. I can I can walk that 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 route and saying yes, but that also ha- helps us to 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 think through what ethics means, of course. But it's also disruptive, and, and it is. And in this case, with this movie, I think it's very hard to, to draw some sort of moral lesson out of it or some sort of ethical stance. It's more about precisely the confusion that you don't know when looking at this movie. What's real? What is a dream? Or, and that's the, 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 uh, the disturbing part, what's a hallucination? And the dream... Uh, especially in relation, let's say, to the history of cinematography, can still be translated back. Let's say the classic example would be uh, all the movies by Hitchcock. He, he studied Freud. So, so if you know the, the, the key, you can translate back uh, what the images, in a sense, connote or what they mean. But in the case of this movie, there is, there's images in it that don't seem to be, have a source in a subject or an actor in the movie, a, a character. Which means then that on a level of trying to distinguish what's referential, what's real, and what is unreal, the movie doesn't give an answer. And it's it's within this, let's say, fluidity of reality and hallucination that this character of Chang plays his role. And that's, that's also why I, why I do read the movie in, in an international context, where there's more and more violence internationally related both to quasi, let's say, official organizations, paramilitary organizations, organized crime, and political actors claiming that they will solve things or clean things up. But actually what's happening is is that we get into a turbulence of hallucinatory (laughs) situations and images in which it's no longer possible to assess what is true. And that's why I think this movie is disturbing, not in a sense that it kind of (laughs) makes me incoherent, but it's disturbing in the fact that it can be brought back to one of these positions. And in that sense, I think that the movie is bizarrely realistic because if you take a good look around, there's loads of things like this happening.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe
2: Well, let's let's stick stick with this idea. So, in the book, you use this case study of the of the film to discuss the habeas corpus as as a principle and the threat clearly manifest both in the kind of you know, Thai or, or or Philippine war on drug situations where executions just take place extrajudicially, but equally in, in 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 jurisdictions which we would expect to be far more reliable. So, you know the the, the the whole the existence of a Guantanamo Bay extraordinary right. rendition and yeah. so on. Yeah. Maybe maybe you could speak a little bit about how you see the connection between what's happening in the film and what and 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 the reality of, of habeas Corpus being under threat and what it is that that art does between the film and the reality. Like what's the connection yeah. between the film and the Supreme Court of the United States? Yeah
1: perhaps another detour. One of my uh, newest PhDs is going to look at the theme of civil war in the United States at the moment, uh, which is an important theme and a growing theme, a growing industry even, which is not reflecting back on the civil war that was, but the civil war to come. And you'd be surprised what an immensity of of literature, gaming, gaming, Very different forms of art are kind of struggling with this theme or propelling it. If we have as a fact now that a president who has officially and legally been defeated simply said it was untrue, as a result of which a large part of his constituency, more than 60 or 70 percent, I believe, still believes that the sitting president of the United States is an illegal president then, Pierre, we are are precisely where I think this movie is hinting at. Then we are living in times of hallucination because what this former president has been doing is producing his own reality. But it's an own reality that is translated to an entire populace for a part. And at that point, it becomes very difficult to still think about, let's say, the rule of law or uh, regular ways of doing politics because the very result of this hallucination might be that we end up in a civil war hmm. which is already explored visualized imagined by very different forms of art and and these as well then are not reflecting on let's say a reality they are rather proposing a situation that doesn't exist yet could exist or <laughs> strangely enough then loops back on let's say, what's currently going on. And that's then people saying, yes, actually, we are already in a civil war. <laughs> so, so let's say the habeas corpus principle is so important. And, and that's also why I pay attention in that. And that's, that was difficult to do, actually. I pay attention to where, where does this start? So where does the habeas corpus principle start? It starts in a situation in the, in the Middle Ages where, where there's simply no rule of law. And way up until the 16th century, let's say if you traveled through a certain country, one people ruling that that area could simply uh, hijack you or or put you in jail or in in a dungeon or what have you, and then ask your family or what have you to to pay (laughs) for your release. And this was then the principal point of, can you take someone and, and take that person prisoner and put them in a dungeon? Or is there a power? that can somehow say, wait a minute, you have to produce that body so that we can see it and that we can see what you've done with it. That's a very principal point. And, and that brings us in other problems, by the way, because because then uh, you could argue this is where the, the entire problem of sovereignty starts. Apparently, then we, we, we need to have some sort of supreme power, although I don't think that, necess- that that's necessarily the case. So I'm, I'm very much interested in, in the ICC, International Criminal Court in The Hague, which doesn't have a source in the United Nations. It is a a bottom-up organization. That's also a trickiness, by the way, but it's a bottom-up organization. So this is a voluntary organization where countries have to sign in, so to speak. And even if it's a fuzzy authority, it is somehow a threatening authority. It's not coincidental that neither the United States, nor Russia, nor China, um, have committed themselves to this court right and in a sense they are afraid of it although it's a court that has no supreme authority but it has some sort of authority so the habeas corpus princi- principle depends on the fact that some some entity with some kind of authority can say i want to see that body now you already mentioned Guantanamo bay i think this is one of the one of the crimes of the united states of the last decades i mean uh, it's indefensible, legally speaking. This is also why Obama said, I'm going to abolish it, but he couldn't. But he knew as a legal scholar that this is indefensible. And and the fact that that happened and that it somehow was accepted as uh, normal, because there was no large international uh, protest against this, also not politically speaking, to me, that's a sign of a hallucinatory reality. Going back to let's say art, <laughs> there's art protesting against this. I don't many forms don't know many forms of art who would defend this, and there's art that in a sense is fascinated by this hallucinatory middle. And and you could also consider that not just in terms of disruption, but in terms of an investigation. So perhaps indeed let's say it would be very important if art brings people or more parts of the international audience to that moment at which you think, wait a minute, where am I? What is this? And, and then kind of come out of that and think, this is indefensible. But, but again, I didn't see it happen. So there's, there is works of art on this issue. How effective is it? And, and then I think one of the questions to think through is, in what times are we living? So let's say if we live in a bourgeois society... the rule of law is functional, might be fun to get into works of art that are truly hallucinatory. Let's say, Mm -hmm. parts of the avant-garde have tried that. But if you live in hallucinatory times, then, let's say, making hallucinatory art might simply be mimicking the situation without, let's say, having any uh, edge to it.
2: Well, let's try to loop back maybe to to one of the earlier chapters where, where some more positive things are happening and, and you open your, your serious consideration of your case studies with the, the logics of fear and desire. Yeah. And your example at the beginning of the book is Milo Rao's The Congo Tribunal, mm-hmm. which is a theatrical staging of well, of a tribunal, of a court process from 2015. And it takes as its subject the the plethora of abuses of all sorts of rights. But in absence of of those kind of structures working, it is occasionally down to artists to try to bring together the logics of the law, the, the desires of the populace. So maybe you could describe a little bit what, what it is that, my, that the artist Myloraire was able to do and, and how that
1: plays out. Um, once art starts to really intervene, if it can, then we are in the mess of politics. That's what it is. And, and the essence of politics is messy. So there is no purity in politics. And I, I think it is slightly not really fair to ask that art should be pure in its intervention in very complicated situations and ignore the fact that that's impossible. So yes, Milo Rao's work can be criticized uh, for several reasons, but he also did something that is, I think, very important and very, very promising and also al- almost paradigmatic. Okay, so there's no rule of law. There's no art either, by the way, almost no art, because it's a chaos. It's, it's, it's anarchy but functional anarchy time and again especially in eastern congo there are certain parties with interests that profit from this that profit from the fact that the rule of law does not exist there and what milo Rao then does i think is is fascinating because he sets up a tribunal not i mean there was also let's say a version in um, in berlin but he wants he wants it to be done there right at the spots with the actors that are engaged in the very complexity of what's going on. And it it was successful or it worked because people wanted to participate, thinking this is only art. And I think that at least some of them uh, were in for a surprise. <laughs> because the very fact that a tribunal, even if it wasn't if it was an official tribunal, was being shown, was being worked out with a real audience. Very important, I think. It's also part of this chapter. There is a theatrical origin to, to, let's say, the the very um, performance of a court case that needs a live audience. This is one of, let's say, the animal uh, parts of, of human beings. We have to be there in the flesh Bodies looking at one another, sensing one another, smelling one another. That's actually what Milorau did. And I consider that to be a very worthwhile effort because it gave people the idea it is possible. The, the law is not dead. Justice is not dead. It is possible to bring people to court. So now, again, we are some years later. Uh, the rule of law, of course, is not restored. I mean, who would want to give that task to art? that it would be able to restore the rule of law. But that's not the point here. I think the point here is that it shows the possibility. I, f- I find that uh, worthy of praise, so to speak, uh, if only because, let's say, the people who did this uh, also were themselves in very dangerous situations. <laughs> so they were not afraid to to go in there, so to speak. And then in this, in this chapter, the, the logic of fear is defined as... The rule of laws fear that there would be another law, let's say a plurality of laws. The logic of desire is that time and again, people want there to be justice and also want there to be then a trustworthy system of law. And in this case, uh, the the thing that disrupts it is apathy, where people don't care anymore. Uh, because they were traumatized too much, or they're too tired, or what have you, and then they don't care anymore whether it's a system of law, or whether there's no justice, or what have you. And actually, that's pretty much what the situation in the Eastern Congo is, that, that large parts of the populace are forced into a state of apathy.
2: Well, that's incredibly interesting. and I've come across examples of Quite similar-sounding projects in many different contexts. I mean, the, 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 this tribunal idea clearly performs a function that civil society is interested in. Not so long ago, in London, a, a group of artists and activists staged a tribunal in which they put Brexit on trial. You know, that's a that's a trivial example, yeah, and I mean, yeah. the, the the flaw there was that that no one who represented the pro-Brexit side was even present in the room. But but there, there have been plenty of examples, quite often engineered by artists. And I was really, really taken in by, by your discussion of, indeed, the theatricality of the legal process. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if, if I could ask you to say a few more things, a little bit about the history of this theatricality. And one other thing that came to, to mind, thinking about, again, in the Congo, the the idea being not necessarily that we would want to make the law come to its senses and be performant, but rather think about the plurality of laws and changes in the law. Whether there's something to be said about the role of theatricality and the role of art in
1: lawmaking. Small detour, but perhaps, a, no, that's, that's not a detour, that's an that's essence as well. So um, uh, one of my other uh, PhDs um, wrote a book that was one big argument against animal rights. What does it mean? That one species grants itself the right? to give other animals rights. This comes back to, let's say, one of the, the, the major themes in my work, which is sovereignty, right? So apparently human beings grant themselves the supreme power to distribute rights. And most of the time to animals with two eyes that prefer we can show expression, especially when they are in pain and so forth. The principal argument against this was that we don't have that. We, can, we cannot defend that position. And what the nice thing about this analysis was that it made me think, okay, suppose then that, that animal rights is not the way to go. What is? And that's when I wrote, together with another uh, of my PhDs, uh, an article about, it's about procedure. So we don't need, let's say, an analysis of animal rights. We need to ask, who is to be the judge between human beings and animals? And we had this fascinating uh, 10th century story, a big book even, written by the pure brethren of Basra, which was in an Islam, Islamic center in Baghdad, where they wrote a book called The Case of the Animals Against Mankind. And they bring the case of the animals before the king of the jinn. So in Islam, you have three entities, animals, human beings, and it's a rather awkward translation, ghosts. The important point here is that the case of the animals is not brought before a human court. It's brought before an independent court. And, and I think this procedural point is way more important in terms of achieving justice than talking about rights. So first, the procedure has to be there, on the basis of which we can start to talk about, let's say, the establishment of justice. And that's also related to the argument that I'm making in this uh, chapter. So first, we need to have a space, a space where we can meet with a distribution of roles in front of one another, physically there and where we can confront the things that have been done. And that's the theatrical origin. And precisely, again, with this third. So this is also why I go back to the the origin of Greek theater, where you have, let's say, a storyteller first, and then uh, comes in a second actor who answers. The the Greek term is hypocrites, (laughs) which we can still recognize in our hypocrite, right? So that's been, uh, let's say, that has become, let's say, an equivalent of, of actor as someone who produces an illusionary reality, but that's not the point. The point is, first, hypocritus means he who answers. Then we have two speakers, but the great uh, innovation is if we get three speakers, which is when the third speaker can come in between. And this is the theatrical origin. And I think you are uh, very right in pointing out that this basic theatrical principle also translates itself to an audience, in the sense that if we are there as an audience, Perhaps, let's say, in terms of procedure, we are not allowed to intervene, but we are there, and in a sense, we are intervening, We are because we are watching, which makes all, all the people on stage aware that we are watching. And by the way, there, have, there, 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 there are a few occasions in which the audience did intervene, but, but then of course, they, the violence of the law, which is another chapter, uh, starts to <laughs> immediately raise its head. But again, the fact that we and that the law is principally open to an audience is pivotal because it it holds this potential of an an audience that either intervenes on the spot or that that goes home and thinks, wait a minute, I'm not going to accept this. I will intervene in this process uh, by different means then. So the the, the animal (laughs) reality of us being there together in the flesh, is, is pivotal to law. This is also why I have my great doubts about the fact that mediation is a growing business in, in law. I mean, there's, most of my legal friends are very fond of this. And I can understand why they're fond of it. And I, eas- I even see, let's say, some advantages of it. But there's also a danger to it. If I have enough money, I can get away with anything.
2: Mm, I would question whether this is necessarily anything new. The mediation is what has brought, brought so, but, this. No,
1: no, but then, then it has a legal aura, right? So then, yeah, of yeah, course, yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. But actually, what's the, the, the introduction of the third speaker? Whether it's the audience or whether it's someone who who brings in an extra either a watchful eye, or even brings in a little bit of testimony, bring, brings us quite neatly to, to the chapter that I think interested me the most. And this is your consideration of the official versus the officious, which looks at ways in which, say, non-standard forms of evidence can become evidence. Things like testimony that doesn't necessarily meet the, the threshold of legal testimony or witness testimony, can somehow become incorporated into legal processes. And we're looking here at essentially fiction. The, the Mexican US writer Valeria Luiselli's book, The Lost Children Archive from 2019, I think, yeah. which is, well, a document, I guess, in a certain way, but it's also a complete fiction which looks at the reality of the deportation of children, migrant children, under the Obama administration, which is one of those beautiful Beautiful moments, again, when the law is completely happy looking at itself in a mirror and, and doing things that we would probably all condemn as, as unethical. I'd, I'd, li- I'd like us to think a little bit about ways in which the, the idea of testimony and records and that kind of physical, but not always real presence is brought into these kind of situations that you, that you
1: consider here. At some point, uh, a couple of years ago, in... Um The fair city of Amsterdam, students started to protest and they occupied, let's say, the central office of of the university. And the reason was that uh, there were budget cuts again and so forth. And the university had also been investing money in, in the wrong Places, so to speak. So, in a sense, that the mm-hmm. budget cuts were caused by the fact that the university had played with money. And one of the, the key icons of that battle was, was, a, was a building in the center of Amsterdam that was a, a university building that had been sold to a hotel. So they've occupied, let's say, the central building, and I'm asked to to do a presentation. And um, I was annoying. <laughs> so this word keeps on coming <laughs> back. <laughs> because I'd been fighting for a school actually in the center of Utrecht for five years as an activist. And the project that we stopped after these five years was a 50 million euro project. We got to know the ins and outs of Dutch society. We encountered organized crime, but we researched everything. And we found out that this simple school was part of an entire circus of about 40 different schools in Utrecht who all had to be sold so that a big chunk of education for adolescents could, could reorganize itself in three central buildings. But there was may, way more money to be made, of course, than simply what these organizations needed to make these new buildings. I mean, all these schools could be turned, for instance, into apartments, which is where real estate developers were interested. Millions involved. And, and we traced it. We traced everything, which took a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of perseverance and annoying people but i told the the students in amsterdam okay so so let's say this building that you're not kind of talking a lot about is is the icon for how much money has it been sold to whom and what is it connected to and they looked at me with rabbit eyes and they said we don't know and then i said then we can stop talking because then this is not serious you don't know what the forces are that are connected to what you say is the problem so you haven't traced the money, you haven't followed the money, and you haven't documented it. And that is, I think, part of the argument in this chapter. If the law works by means of what is official, then you have to counterbalance that from the realm of justice by, by developing your own documentation. That's what I admire about, about these two books by Louis Sely. This is actually what she describes, right? So the, the trick that the Obama uh, administration played was not that they changed the law, but where previously very young children, let's say, between four and 12, came to the States, would have a year Mm -hmm. to find legal support, they now changed that. They wanted to to give them priority. That's that's the nice phrase of it, right? Which meant that they had two weeks. And of course, let's say, the idea behind this was that they could be expelled after two weeks. So what the people who wanted to work against this or defend the children had to do was use these two weeks to find information, to counter document. And this is then what I, I call officious, also because of the etymology of the term. So often people know what's officially the case and what is officious, right? So there's, there's something going on that, that we know is true, but it's not official. Uh, there's also an element to a is, again, <laughs> that's annoying or disturbing or <laughs> it's perseverant. And that's what I liked about it. So I refused to, to use the, the, the term informal because precisely uh, it has to have form, which need not be paper, by the way. So this is also why I give the example at the beginning of that chapter of, of Australia where, and I think, for instance, what's happening in Canada right now, it's, it's chilling, it's chilling.
2: We're talking about the forced child separations yeah, in, right. in Australia yeah. in the 20th century yeah. and in Canada yeah. until shockingly recently yeah. uh, just being uncovered. Yeah.
1: So often this was not documented, but there were people telling stories about it. And I'm pretty sure uh, mm. now that this has come out in the open that that people will start to look for the narratives, the stories, and that there are people who will be able to tell stories, even if there are no documents.
0: Yeah.
1: So it's not about, let's say, uh, making archives, it's, it might also be, I'm, I'm telling this story and I'm telling it again and I'm telling it to you and I may tell it, let's say, in secrecy first, but I'm telling it. And, and then we have something. So let's say the, the, the horror of, of the stories that Luiselli is dealing with is in a sense best captured by the children in the desert who simply disappear because the sun eats them up, right? They, they, there is, there's nothing... That, that can bring them, in a sense, back to life. And this is why I admire the, the, the fictional work. So one work that I'm looking at is an essay where Louis Selly describes the questions that they used to get the information from the children that could lead to a legal case. So, so how can you, how can you bring, bring people back to life of which nothing is left in the desert? By writing fiction. And that's also, I would call, an officious way of of dealing with them, of, of bringing them back to, to life in, in a restricted way, of course. But I think in terms of activism, this is one of the more underestimated things to look at. I think in, in the current circumstances, protesting is, is dead. We've been protesting, protesting so much, and with such big numbers, <clears throat> nothing has changed. In the Netherlands, a very famous case now is the Urgenda case, or the case against Shell. And in both cases, they've won. And these are important cases about ecological issues, but based on large large amounts of documentation, not made by official uh, organizations, but by, by by citizens, by people coming together and and coming up with their own documentation.
2: Yeah, this is this is fascinating, and actually takes takes us very close to the heart of my own research, which looks at the ways in which knowing one's enemies' business and procedures might actually be a very good route towards winning one's case and and th- the law is clearly one such example where it's difficult to imagine a better way of of getting getting what one wants than actually playing the game. That that conversation of what art the question of what art does in this circumstance or I something remains remains quite moot. And I wonder if I could in a very selfish way draw you into a deeper conversation about forensic architecture. This is this is a practice that I have a particular interest in. And just to introduce it briefly, uh, Forensic Architecture, an investigative agency that has since 2010 been cited at Goldsmiths College in London, founded by architect and activist I.L. Wiseman. And they do all sorts of investigations, quite heavy-duty investigations of usually human rights breaches, but also environmental crimes and so on, so on. And they do it with techniques like open source intelligence, they do it with photogrammetry, they do it with modeling, quite sophisticated and usually, let's say, expensive or resource-intensive investigations. They've done it maybe 70 times. And recently, there's finally come a point at where a piece of evidence that they've produced has convinced the court, or rather has been part of the body of evidence that has convinced convinced the court. So one of the questions that keeps them popping up around forensic architecture, which I think is a little bit reductive, but actually incredibly important, is whether what they do still counts as art when the attempted fiction is not even alluded to. Forensic architecture more often than not outright dismiss the notion of them being artists. That doesn't stop them from being exhibited in in all sorts of galleries and being nominated for the Turner Prize and, and so on. What is the role of an artistic practice like this? What do they do if what they do is essentially present legal files in the public realm? Is this still an artistic endeavor? It's very difficult to really to really pose this as a, as, a, as a more sophisticated question, but but it's it strikes me as this is possibly a counterpoint to quite a few of of your case studies precisely because it's it's so complicated and doesn't really come with any good answers and it, because it plays all the games at the same time?
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. I think it's a very relevant question and a good question or an important issue. The, the easy way uh, out would be to say, yes, but uh, since the 20th century, the, the very idea of art has become so broad that mm. um, anything is art. But then uh, I would go against my own argument that I like uh sharp definitions, right? So, <laughs> so if, if uh, taking my bike to the station also becomes art, and, and conceptually speaking, <laughs> I, could, I could make that argument, uh, nope. then, then, uh, then perhaps too much is becoming art. I think one of the pivots, uh, which is also, I think, why um, Bas Aktuelle Kunst, this is the Art Center in Utrecht, Bach was interested in this, is creating a forum now, how do you create a forum? Which would be a place which is partly theatrical where we can come together to talk about things, right? Uh, so so I think one of the issues of forensic architecture is not to prove something or to prove that others are wrong, it's to open up a conversation, a debate about something that has been silenced or that has been taking place behind the scenes. In a sense, then I would say forensic architecture is deeply theatrical in its in its in its modus operandi, in the sense that it wants to say this happened in the corridors, and now we're going to break it, bring it to a stage. As a result of which, that we can all look, look at it again. So one of the, the let's say the things that I admired was um, um, the the work they did on on the, the NSU in Germany, uh, where let's say. There was a possibility of, of the NSU, three people underground, killing um, not original Germans secretly, at some point, at a place where someone of the secret services was, was present. So they lay out the ground floor of that space. And what does that do to me as, as an audience? So I'm, I'm not looking at the restaging of what happened, uh, which would perhaps be too easy. No, I have the space. I have the ground floor i can check the steps so in a sense they ask me to to co-invest or to co-investigate so one aspect then is this uh this forum part how do we create a theatrical situation again in which we can participate in which things are being brought out into the open and we are able to say what we think about it, that would be one thing. The other thing is, I think uh, Weizmann is, is pretty explicit. And, and I, you might be right in saying, if it becomes simply a, a bureau of investigation, then, then in a sense, art will be dead. That's true. But it's not if you say, we are not a bureau of investigation. We are trying to find out possible narratives. And I think, uh, say, in terms of looking at this critically, this would be a pain point, right? So that the things that I've seen from them often are not that open in the sense that you could say, yes, perhaps that happened, perhaps something else as well. So there seems to be, there there is there is often an aura that they seem to claim we have found out that, that this is actually the case. Um, and that would go against their argument that we need... Imaginations, alternatives, uh, the opening up of cases, and but, but even then, uh, I would not argue that it's not art. It might be bad art, actually, in the sense that. It's-
2: <laughs> um, I, I can't possibly comment on the record because my, my PhD might rely on, on, on my position, but but that has been said. Yeah, <laughs> I think what's I think I think what I'm what I'm drawn to out out of a conversation is to to. Try to think a little bit about the aesthetic um, element not just not just in in this particular practice, but like the ideas of evidentiary aesthetics and rhetorical aesthetics, mm-hmm. which is the one way with which art can easily defend itself. And I think it will be quite easy to read the case studies in your book and to to actually see that the aesthetic is incredibly important to how all of these works of art, play the role that they do. Yeah. That's not necessarily to say that the same role couldn't have been played by other processes. I presume, I'm not a legal scholar, so I may be, making, may, may be completely wrong, but I presume that in some kind of crystallized, idealized abstraction of the law, the law is already performing justice. So in that situation where the law and morality come together, mm-hmm. there's no need for art to mediate anything. But since we're not living in this perfect world, I guess we, we, need, we do need to rely on art, which is both a kind of exciting, but also a very bleak state of affairs, I guess.
1: I'm, I'm not sure whether it's a bleak state of affairs. Um, and, and going back to your previous remark, so if you would have, let's say, the coincidence of, of law doing its perfect work, which, by the way, would be impossible because the realm of justice is disparate, and this, I think, is also part of, of the fascinating work by Peter Goodrich, uh, needs its own aesthetics. It needs its own imagery, its own clothes. So there's also an aesthetic element to the very performance of art, without which it wouldn't be much, or it wouldn't have that force. And I think the enormous power in aesthetics, I, I would define that uh, on the basis of a distinction that I also introduced in the first chapter that Spinoza made between Potestas and potencia. Uh, Potestas being the power from above, and potentia being the the infinite potential in everything that exists. So what Potestas, time and again, tries is to rule that immensity, and it can't. It it can only kind of be some sort of parasite on it, although it can be a very powerful parasite. And these two involve different forms of aesthetics, I would argue. So, So power also needs its aesthetics. That's that's been studied a lot. For instance, uh, I mean, it's also part of, of what Walter Benjamin analyzes. So Nazism had had its aesthetics, and <laughs> a very powerful one. So I, I in a, in, a, in a different book, perhaps you could argue we would have to define more sharply what kind of aesthetics are we talking about. Is this the aesthetics of power, or the aesthetics of the potential? And sometimes the two can be used both ways, but at points they also diverge. And then it's impossible to use the one aesthetics in the other context and the other way around. But in terms of what I've been trying to argue for in this book, I think the force of art is aesthetic in the sense that it stays with us. So if, if I have an argument, I can convince you or, or you can start to doubt or what have you. But the beauty, and not in the beautiful sense, but the beauty of of art and aesthetics is that it, it hits us on so many levels and somehow it travels with us. It doesn't disappear. So in terms of justice, I would always put my cards on art because of this very potential that if it's a successful piece of art, it will travel with us and it will survive decades and at times hundreds of years.
2: Well, that's a beautiful tribute to your subject. Thank you. Thank you so much for your, for your time and, and your generous, generous sharing of your work with us. But before I let you go, you, I want to ask you about your future research. You, you signed up to write about seven books in the course of our conversation now, but where, where, do, you see, where, where do you see yourself going next and, and will you follow up on any of this, of yeah, this
1: research? I surely will. We just got a a big project funded by the National Dutch Society of Sciences, which is about playing politics. And this is together with uh, four colleagues from the Department of Media Studies, Philosophy, uh, Literature. And uh, what we're looking at is the ways in which certain contemporary politicians, but there's a lot of them by now, seem to be playing a political game that doesn't answer to the logic of the way Mm -hmm. in which we have been playing politics. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that we have to analyze what this play with the former play is, or this play with the former game? Or do we have to rethink what politics is about and and how it should be played or can be played? So this is clearly about, let's say, populism, in the sense that what it is playing with. And I'll be looking then at the ways in which uh, populist politicians have been trying to play with the law. So there are several cases by now, and uh, the fascinating thing is as, as long as the law supports them or guarantees their safety, it's good, and as soon as they're criticized, they drop the, the law as if it's a, a cup of coffee, and, and they're, they're not bothered by spilling it. So I'll, I'll be looking at the ways in which they are playing with the feel for law which is, uh, my argument would be that that's, that's carried by the larger population, that, that you still feel what the law should be. And if we start to play with that, we might be ending up in very dangerous situations. Or not. That's what I'm going to look at. Uh, so that's one part. Uh, so that's one part. And then um, I've been doing classes in, in The Hague for international studies called Culture Interaction. And, and something new now is um, urban studies, where I did uh, uh, imagining the city. And that's very much related, again, to, let's say, issues of justice in urban environments. I'll keep that, let's say, uh, in mind. But I'm working now on a book with a young colleague of mine that would be about culture interactions based on this idea of potestas potencia and then also bringing in the different cultures that we now, so let's say classically speaking, 19th century, 20th century cultural interactions about human beings interacting, but I, I also involve animals and uh, technologies then that we are ending up in a very more complex field of cultural interactions and how we can think about that and deal with that, which uh, in each chapter starts with music, by the way. That's also something that oh. we didn't discuss yet. Yeah. Oh.
2: Brilliant. Yeah. Well, I look forward to to having you hearing you back on the New Books Network, Franz Willem, Thank you so much.
1: And thank you, Pierre, for having me. It was a joy speaking to you. So,
2: Art as an Interface of Law and Justice: Affirmation, Disturbance, Disruption, by Franz Willem Colsten is published by Hart. I'm Pierre Delanceur and the editor is Marshall Poe. Thank you for listening, and join us next time.